In the mid-1960s, the counterculture was booming. Free love was everywhere. Young adults protested the war in Vietnam. And for Princeton dropout William Leonard Picard, it was the perfect time to join a hippie commune in Northern California. Nestled in the High Sierras, the science prodigy lost himself to a new way of thinking. Skinny dips in the crisp alpine lakes by moonlight were followed by fireside conversations on the meaning of life. Picard himself described what he called a search for theology in the High Sierra, refinement of the soul in the vast deserts, finding what was of true value in the world and what was proper conduct among others. Contemplating the celestial and diving into discussions of consciousness, those at the commune dropped psychedelics and enjoyed the mind-altering effects of hallucinogens like LSD. The LSD trips fascinated Picard. While he believed firmly in the benefits of psychedelics, the drug use did more than just expand his mind. It piqued his interest in the chemistry behind the kaleidoscopic visions. He quickly became obsessed with how to make these hallucinogens for the masses. He wanted to spread the mind-bending effects to all. Before long, William Leonard Picard, the counterculture chemist, would leave his California commune and become the Acid King. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our first episode on William Leonard Picard, a brilliant chemist who spent over 20 years cooking hallucinogenic drugs. This week, we'll follow Picard's entry into the world of psychedelics. We'll also learn how his obsession with the drug's chemistry compelled him to continue experimenting despite finding himself in and out of jail. Next week, we'll trace Picard's work as he manufactured high-end designer drugs and ultimately created one of the largest LSD labs ever discovered, earning him the name of the Acid King. Coming up, we'll follow his journey into the heart of psychedelics. By 1977, 31-year-old William Leonard Picard discovered the perfect combination his prodigal knack for chemistry and his adoration of counterculture came together perfectly to cook illegal drugs. But instead of treating his experiments like some two-bit meth dealer looking for a quick fix, Picard cooked with what he considered sophistication. He upheld the highest philosophy among renowned psychedelic chemists. Like the infamous 1960s LSD cookers that he greatly admired, Picard sought to create the best drugs possible. It was never about the money. He believed psychedelics could change the world. For Picard, designing drugs was a challenge, the real-life chance to prove his brilliance and his edginess. 
he strove to create the best, trippiest, or even the couldn't-be-done versions of his favorite illicit compounds. If he could do this, he could prove to the world just how brilliant he was as a chemist, and more importantly, he can help people awake their subconscious like never before. The question, of course, became how exactly he would go about accomplishing this. By the late 1970s, Picard was 31 and studying chemistry at San Jose State University. While there, he began experimenting in the lab with MDMA, the drug commonly known as ecstasy. And it was during this experimentation when an idea formed. Picard considered designing an alternate variation. In chemistry, this kind of a process is known as an analog. And his idea was what if he cooked MDMA's chemical cousin, MDA? Picard simply altered the recipe and the effects ever so slightly. Like ecstasy, MDA delivers feelings of euphoria, but it's trippier. Unlike its chemical cousin, MDMA, MDA, or the love drug, can also cause hallucinations. Picard quickly got to work and synthesized an ecstasy alternative. He perfected his MDA recipe and before long introduced it to the Northern California scene. This was likely one of his first forays into the world of manufacturing illegal drugs for the masses. Stories about Picard's life are just as convoluted and full of holes, like a bad acid trip. But what we do know was that Picard was something of a paradox. He walked a fine balance between the curious intellectual and the rebellious adventurer. He'd stay on that tightrope for his entire life. Born on October 21, 1945, William Leonard Picard came into a family with generations of intellectuals. His father, also named William, was a civil attorney and his mother Lucille held a PhD from Columbia University. She then researched fungal diseases for the Center of Disease Control. Picard, who often went by his middle name, grew up in DeKalb County, Georgia, an Atlanta suburb. His neighborhood was populated with social, academic, and church-going folk. Picard described life as suits on Sunday, no alcohol, learned to handle rifles at nine, Read endlessly, azaleas, rhododendrons, lightning, fireflies. It was, by all accounts, a typical upper-middle-class Southern upbringing. In Georgia, the Picard family was well-connected and constantly mingled with influential voices. The governor's mother, for example, apparently even taught young Picard at Sunday school. But in the heart of this church-going, well-to-do Southern family, was a deep-seated love for science. With his mother's work as a researcher, famous worldly scientists often stayed with the Picards. And their dinnertime conversations fascinated young William Leonard. He quickly developed a taste for intellectual stimulants that fed his voracious mind. With each visit, his inspirations grew. He since recalled spending many happy moments as a small boy observing paramecia under my great-grandfather's microscope. His immense yearn to learn pleased his parents. They were proud of their son's natural intelligence, and his mother did all she could to further promote his talent in the sciences. 
By the time Picard was in high school, he had become something of a prodigy. He was named most intellectual by his class. At the age of 17, he even won a Westinghouse talent search, earning him the recognition as one of the top science students in the country. When it came time for college, Picard had an unsolicited 22 university scholarships offered to him. Ultimately, he chose to attend Princeton in 1963. Yet, upon arriving at Princeton that year, Picard was soon lured away from his Ivy League scholarship by the temptations of New York. The Greenwich Village Jazz Clubs were just a short train ride from campus, and they were far more entertaining to Picard than his run-of-the-mill introduction classes. Seduced by the scene of the 1960s and bored by the standards of academia, Picard dropped out of college before completing his freshman year. Perhaps he was intimidated by the echelon of his peers, or perhaps he was hungry for adventure. Fueled by his trust fund, the prodigy turned dropout hit the road. Picard searched for what he since described as a greater experience of the human condition than the tenure track could have provided. He fumbled around middle America looking for trouble, and he soon found it. He was arrested twice in Alabama for forging checks and once in New Jersey for stealing a car and joyriding. By 1967, 21-year-old Picard had made it to the West Coast just in time for the Summer of Love. The Birds, Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, Jefferson Airplane and Janis Joplin all provided the soundtrack to his experience, blending activism and the collective consciousness under the guise of folk or trippy rock. At the same time, the civil rights movement was in full swing. Across the nation, colleges erupted in passionate protests. The heat was on to remove troops from Vietnam. For young adults, political activism, free love, and drug use were intertwined. Picard had entered the counterculture's epicenter. As Picard was exploring the Bay Area, he befriended Talitha Stills, sister to musician Stephen Stills, founder of the band Buffalo Springfield. Talitha told Rolling Stone, An extraordinary time. Leonard was beyond university before he ever got to university. He had a real interest in medicine and the chemistry and pharmacology underlying the drug movement. He was all over the place. It was almost impossible to keep tabs on him. In the late 1960s, everyone in Northern California seemingly had turned on, tuned in, and dropped out. The phrase, coined by famous psychedelic psychologist Timothy Leary, perfectly captured the essence of the counterculture. People paid attention and got involved. Most importantly, though, they dropped psychedelics to expand their minds. Youth culture revolved around this intersection of activism and self-exploration. Each person searched for their path. Dropping out of society with the use of psychedelic drugs was fashionable and encouraged by counterculture leaders. This inspired Picard to join a commune sometime at the end of the 1960s. And during this time, his interest in all things psychedelic blossomed. It wasn't long before he realized his true calling in life was psychedelic drugs. Picard didn't know how or what he was going to do with psychoactive drugs yet. 
But he knew he needed to share these mind-awakening gifts with the masses. It was his mission to help people explore the collective consciousness. So, in 1971, Picard left the Commune. For the next few years, he bounced between research positions and universities before landing at Stanford in the late 1970s. There, his academic aptitude resurfaced. He studied organic chemistry and neurophysiology. Picard refused to isolate his personal love of psychedelics from his scholarly pursuits, though. The more he learned about chemistry, the more tempted he became to synthesize psychedelics himself. After a few months racking his brain on what to actually cook, the 31-year-old had a light bulb moment. He realized he could make a variant of the popular psychotropic MDMA. By synthesizing the more hallucinogenic MDA, he could once and for all answer his calling. He went to work experimenting with MDA. Unfortunately, Picard's operation was halted before it even took off. His neighbors complained of a concerning chemical stench coming from his house. Just before his 32nd birthday, the sheriff's department came knocking. Coming up, William Picard subverts trouble and gets right back to cooking. Hello listeners, Alastair here. It's the spookiest season of the year, and Parcast Network has many chilling surprises lined up for you, starting with its newest original series, a show that I host, called Haunted Places Ghost Stories. Every week on Ghost Stories, I retell one of the scariest, most hair-raising ghost stories ever imagined. These stories come from all over the world, including Japan, India, the UK, even ancient Rome, and were written by some of the greatest storytellers in literature. Join me as I bring stone-cold classics to life, like The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, a sinister account of a condemned murderer's final wish and the lengths he'd go to fulfill it. And The Miserere, a Spanish tale of a wandering musician who hears a terrifyingly beautiful song in a burned-out monastery and is doomed to capture its notes until he dies. New episodes air every Thursday, but you'll have chills all week long. You can find and follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, October is our favorite month and one of our busiest. So make sure to search Parcast Network in the Spotify search bar to see all our new shows. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1977, 31-year-old chemist William Leonard Picard sat in his Bay Area home. In his basement was a fully functional drug lab. Here, Picard attempted to synthesize an ecstasy analog, MDA. After years of drifting around California, embracing the counterculture and the use of psychoactives, Picard had finally found his calling, cooking drugs. Unfortunately, Picard didn't take the best of precautions. He was still new to the business of drug manufacturing, after all. 
In October, a neighbor complained of a strange chemical odor coming from Picard's house. On October 10, 1977, the sheriff's department paid Picard a visit. The preppy student greeted them in a V-neck sweater, a far cry from the look of a malicious drug peddler. However, when they discovered Picard's lab, it was obvious that Picard was more than just a brainy academic. While it was unclear to the arresting sheriffs if Picard was actually successful in synthesizing MDA, Picard was booked. He'd still attempted to manufacture a controlled substance. Once in custody, Picard was cooperative. Alan Johnson, the chief inspector for the Santa Cruz District Attorney's Office, recalled that he had a delightful conversation with Leonard. He struck me as a really bright kid. It wasn't lost on Johnson that Picard was operating on a whole different level. The inspector explained that, Today's cookers just get a recipe from some criminal. They mix a little of this and a little of that. They don't really know what they're doing. Picard, with his chemistry background, was taking a more methodical approach. But ultimately, Picard's argument for the pursuit of scientific knowledge lost. He was found guilty and sentenced to three years in prison. Picard was incredibly careful about the information he chose to divulge in custody. He never gave up his accomplices, if he had any, and he never admitted to distribution. While imprisoned, his story changed entirely. Instead of attempting an analog, he instead asserted that he tried to sell lab gear. He claimed that the trace amounts of MDA actually came from the previous owner of the equipment. But no one really believed this story, no matter how much of a preppy entrepreneur he played. By 1979, after serving 18 months, 34-year-old Picard was released. But that didn't mean he reformed. In fact, he went back to dabbling in illicit chemistry. By February 1980, just a few months after his release, Picard was again arrested. This time, it was in Gainesville, Georgia, for making amphetamines. However, he wasn't convicted. And four months later, he was picked up in DeLand, Florida, for distributing his MDA. This arrest, though, confirmed that Picard had in fact mastered the formula and that he had every intent to distribute. It remains unclear if Picard served any time for the Florida arrest. Despite this early string of arrests, Picard remained on a quest of psychedelic discovery. Harvard PhD and psychedelic advocate Rick Doblin believed that Picard kept cooking in an effort to liberate the collective mind. Doblin told Rolling Stone, I think he was after money, but he had a romantic notion about the value of psychedelics, like a lot of us do. Mark Dowie, a former acquaintance of Picard's, also reflected on Picard's broader worldview. In an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle, Dowie said that he was, in a way, part of the love generation. He really believed LSD and its derivatives could produce a better culture. But in order to fully succeed, Picard realized he couldn't be a one-man operation. By the early 1980s, he knew he needed a mentor to further his understanding of chemistry behind psychedelics. The first on his list was a man named Tim Scully, who he had previously met in 1974. 
Scully was an infamous large-scale LSD cooker in Sonoma County. Scully, too, shared the belief that acid could raise consciousness. In the early 1970s, he faced trial for his psychedelic operation. His argument to the court was that he wanted to turn on the world. Picard greatly admired Scully. During his trial, Picard even came to pay his respects. Scully recalls that there was a break and I walked out into the hall and he introduced himself as a fellow chemist. There, Picard had gifted Scully a small U.S. Army chemical warfare pin designed with a flask and test tube. It was Picard's way of showing solidarity. And when Scully was released from prison in the early 1980s, Picard paid him a visit. Scully recalled that Picard wanted to compare and contrast methods of making acid. It was obvious that Picard now wanted to go bigger, to synthesize LSD. Though Picard still claimed it was all theoretical, Scully knew what the younger man was really after. Scully politely declined entertaining any further discussion. He was out of the game. Not to be deterred, Picard continued his search for a mentor. And by 1987, the 42-year-old Picard found him. At the time, Picard had moved schools and was studying at San Francisco State University. There, he fell under the influence of one of his professors, Alexander Sasha Shulgin. Shulgin was a white-haired eccentric and legendary drug researcher. He advocated for the therapeutic value of hallucinogens and committed his life to their study. For years, Shulgin was one of the few researchers in the U.S. who was allowed to use Schedule I drugs, like ecstasy, in research. And he was famous for it. Shulgin became a psychoactive Hall of Famer. He gained popularity for synthesizing and advocating for ecstasy. He went so far as to call it low-calorie martini. His work with the compound earned him the title the Godfather of Ecstasy. Picard was fascinated by his San Francisco State professor. He watched Shulgin meld academia with his passion for psychedelics. The two soon forged a relationship that would feed them both intellectually for years to come. Picard would later say, I hold Sasha as a real hero. But unlike Shulgin, Picard struggled to keep his psychedelic adoration in the academic and theoretical. For Picard, actually creating the psychedelics was the only true testament to his skill as a chemist. It wasn't enough to theorize, he had to create them. He wanted people to trip. So, armed with the knowledge he received from Shulgin, Picard set out to create his psychedelics. But first, he'd need a lab. It's unclear if Picard himself set up the LSD layer in Mountain View, located 40 miles south of San Francisco, or if it was already there. But by 1988, he was definitely cooking there. It didn't look like much. It was the kind of temporary trailer you'd find on most construction sites, except this one was in the middle of a warehouse in an industrial park. Inside the trailer was state-of-the-art equipment, including a roto-evaporator, heating mantles, and a pill press. 
The press is a machine that compounds pills on mass levels. Because they're so heavily restricted by the DEA, it's the kind of machinery that's nearly impossible to obtain. And yet, Picard somehow got one. Stacked on the floor of the trailer were cases of blotter paper. LSD comes in all different forms, but the most common is through blotting paper. It's a highly absorbent material that resembles the tissue paper used in gift bags. LSD cooks, though, usually prefer to get a little more artistic with sheets displaying comical or surreal cartoons. In Picard's lab, the boxes of papers were each printed with unique designs. Some had Grateful Dead album covers on them, others contained samurais or tropical scenes. LSD itself is a clear and nearly undetectable liquid. Each chemist stabs a few drops onto the blotting paper. From there, the paper is divided into small squares or tabs, each with a hit of acid on them. Users hold the tab in their mouth until all the liquid has dissolved. The paper can then be swallowed or spit out. Because blotting paper is nearly translucent and astoundingly lightweight, blotter LSD is subsequently one of the easiest drugs to move. To cook acid, though, the critical component is the chemical ET, or ergotamine tartrate. It's highly regulated in the US, so many chemists illegally smuggle it through Eastern Europe. This lays the groundwork for LSD export chains. While it's suspected that Picard and his accomplices sold their synthesized acid to contacts in Eastern Europe and across the US, their supply ring was never fully uncovered. The exact details of his operation, like who he sold to and where his drugs went, have remained a mystery. Most of this is thanks to Picard's sealed lips and his under-the-radar tactics. He even had his and his accomplices' phones forwarded to second lines. Then, the seconds were forwarded to thirds. In the U.S., the Picard operation sent money, and perhaps also shipments of blotting paper, through the mail system. This was referred to as a blind mail drop because the shipper and receiver could move the contraband without drawing attention. To facilitate this, Picard took out P.O. boxes across the Bay Area so that he could make drop-offs at multiple locations. Each was a public and unsuspecting place, with tons of foot traffic and stacks of P.O. boxes. Picard could slip in and out undetected. Often his friends and acquaintances helped pick up or drop off his mail. It's unclear for how long Picard ran this manufacturing and distribution operation. It's possible that he may have even begun while studying under Shulgin. However, it's suspected that it earned him millions. But despite his best efforts to remain inconspicuous and off the radar, Picard was producing on too large a scale. While LSD cooking is far more compact and muted, in comparison to meth or heroin, like any operation that becomes too big for its threshold, it can attract attention. By 1988, yet another neighboring businessman in the Mountain View complex became suspicious. Perhaps it was because only a few select people ever traversed in and out of the warehouse. Or perhaps it was because Picard failed to once again cover up that wavering chemical scent.
Coming up, fearing a growing rap sheet, Picard makes an attempt to go straight. Now back to the story. Sometime in the late 1980s, 42-year-old psychedelic chemist William Leonard Picard had finally achieved his dream of synthesizing psychotropic drugs. Tucked into a trailer lab hidden within a Northern California warehouse, he'd made immense progress. He'd gone from experimenting in his basement to full-scale illicit drug production. And he was, allegedly, making millions from it. Unfortunately, he didn't learn from his mistakes when it came to fully covering his tracks. In December 1988, a nosy neighbor filed a complaint of a strange and odorous chemical smell coming from Picard's warehouse. On December 28th, the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement, a now defunct California State Narcotics Agency, raided the warehouse. There, they discovered not only the lab, but Picard's multiple forms of identification. Special Agent Ron Brooks recalls that it was a huge lab. He was making window pane, microdot, and blotter. Which is to say that Picard had certainly diversified his operation. He had several types of LSD manufactured, totaling 123,278 pills and 89,802 tabs of acid. The pill form was an incredibly rare production method in the late 80s. As the BNE rifled through the lab equipment, they also discovered a note. It read, As I prepare my third kilogram of LSD, I think with amusement of our last conversation three years ago, when you called me a liar, and I had to walk you down the hall to get you the very first gram. It went on to say, The recent change indicates that someone close to you has accessed an existing system and its potential problems. I hope you can monitor these proceedings in some way, since you come from the finest psychedelic heritage prior to being seduced by some sleazy cocaine and quaalude nightmare. While it's never been confirmed that Picard himself wrote the note, or who it was intended for, it paints a clear picture of the magnitude of the operation. Picard knew the scope of his cooking. In terms of heroin or cocaine, a kilo isn't much. It's only about 2.2 pounds. But for a drug like acid, it's an exponential unit of measure. The DEA currently estimates that a kilo of LSD creates over 10 million doses. Each dose costs about one cent to make and can be sold for up to $10. Only Picard truly knew how much LSD was produced and mailed to middlemen across the world and how much money he was raking in. And that wasn't all the little lab was brewing. Agent Ron Brooks further clarified that Picard was making not only LSD, but also synthetic mescaline, which is very difficult to synthesize. He was an excellent chemist. Brooks recalled that it was a beautiful, pure white, needle-like crystal. Apparently, it was only synthesized several times ever, and Picard was a guy who knew how to do it. The Mountain View Lab asserted Picard into the throes of psychedelic royalty. 
The BNE attempted to track down his accomplices, but behind multiple phone forwards, mail drops, and aliases, they all disappeared. Picard was all they had, and he wasn't giving anyone up. But that didn't mean that Picard was totally uncooperative. During his interrogation, he warned BNE agents against dismantling the lab. Instead, he urged them to just burn the place down. It would be a lot safer. And he was right. Someone did get hurt when they didn't follow his advice. According to Rolling Stone, one of the BNE agents was accidentally dosed upon entering the lab, despite wearing a full body protective suit and respirator. Within a few hours, he began convulsing. He was rushed to the hospital and given an IV of Valium to calm his anxiety. In the months that followed, the agent suffered bouts of depression and anxiety. Picard felt sympathy for the agent, saying to journalist Peter Wilkinson, I regret his difficult moments, although I suffered the same effects without benefit of protective suits. It was the first time that Picard publicly admitted to cooking acid. After the bust in 1988, the 43-year-old Picard was sentenced to eight years in California's Terminal Island prison. However, he was released early in 1992, serving just half of his sentence. It was later revealed that prior to his sentencing, Picard served as an informant for state and federal drug agents. This status, combined with good behavior, contributed to his early release. While informing, Picard helped investigate methamphetamine operations. Unlike psychedelics, Picard felt that other hard drugs, like meth, heroin, and cocaine, held no redeeming qualities. Just because he was himself a cook, it didn't mean that he supported all drugs. Picard fell in line with the philosophy set forth by counterculture leader Wavy Gravy. He believed that there was blood on heroin and cocaine. Like many psychonauts or psychoactive advocates, Picard thought that drugs like LSD and ecstasy had incredible benefits on the human consciousness. Common theories implied that microdosed or small doses of psychedelics over a substantial period of time could help treat anxiety, depression, and disorders like bipolarism. In large doses, the drugs are thought to provide mind-altering epiphanies and revelations that expand the collective consciousness. They encourage peace and unity between living things. But they were, and are still, illegal. During his trial in 1988, the U.S. District Court judge urged Picard to re-evaluate his priorities. Think about straightening out his life in a way that didn't include making illegal drugs. It seemed that Picard took the advice to heart. When he got out in 1992, the 47-year-old realigned his priorities. He was going to go straight and completely turn his life around. Picard started by moving into the Zen Center in San Francisco. He rose for daily meditations at 5 a.m. along with the other students. Afterwards, he swept around the monastery's grounds. From there, he went to class at UC Berkeley, where he shifted his focus to the psychology of drug addiction. He became fascinated with people's addictions. He wanted to help shape government policy to combat it. 
Whether it was what he witnessed while in prison or on the streets of San Francisco, Picard seemed to have had an epiphany to help society in a different way. As Picard advanced his research, he also came into his own as a renowned scientist and intellectual. He surrounded himself with like-minded individuals and attended occasional potlucks hosted by his former professor, Alexander Sasha Shulgin. Scientists, engineers, writers, artists, and even the astronaut Buzz Aldrin were known to attend these gatherings. They discussed matters of consciousness into the wee hours of the night, intoxicated by each other's perspectives. Harvard policy professor Mark Kleiman recalls that even amongst his fellow brilliant minds, Picard struck the group as a super brilliant chemist. Kleiman became so impressed with Picard that two years later, he oversaw Picard's research at Harvard. By 1994, Picard had secured a research associate position in Harvard's Division of Addictions. He later enrolled in the Kennedy School of Government's master's program. In 1996, during his research, Picard is said to have become the first to predict the opioid crisis of fentanyl and carfentanil. This was a full 22 years in advance of the crisis that was widely publicized throughout the U.S. in 2018. After graduating in 1997, Picard followed Mark Kleiman back to California. Kleiman had recently been named head of the Influential Drug Policy Research Program at UCLA. Picard had hoped to hitch his wagon to this exciting new project. However, despite the impressive work that Picard did at Harvard, Kleiman still held some reservations about his colleague's past. As he was considering Picard for a position on his team, Kleiman asked him bluntly if he was cooking again. Picard assured Kleiman that he wasn't, that it had been years since he manufactured illicit drugs. Kleiman was satisfied with the answer and soon named Picard as the deputy director of UCLA's Drug Policy Research Program. But as we now know, it appears that Picard wasn't entirely honest with his new boss. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, three years earlier, in 1995, the first authorized test of psychedelics on humans since the 1970s took place in Taos, New Mexico. The subject was Alfred Savinelli. The experiment attracted minds from around the country, including William Leonard Picard. During the trip, Picard met John Halpern, a psychiatric resident in his late 20s at Harvard Medical School. Halpern had recently published a study stating, the illicit use of hallucinogenic drugs is a re-emerging public health problem. On the day they met, Halpern himself was having a bad trip on ayahuasca, a potentially dangerous hallucinogenic tea derived from tropical plants. Fortunately, Picard was there. He served as a sort of spirit guide to Halpern, easing him back to the shallows of reality. This mental rescue instilled a bond between Halpern and Picard that would evolve into a long-lasting friendship. Picard became something of a father figure, or at least an odd uncle to the younger man. Over the coming months, Halpern discussed having to potentially abandon his research for a better-paying job. Picard was shocked 
and confided to Halpern that he had about $1 million cash from both his inheritance and his old days. He promised to help Halpern continue researching. Halpern says he didn't know if Picard was involved in illegal activities, but his behavior was suspicious. Over the course of 1997, Picard had an influx of cash he was willing to invest. He offered Halpern a 10% commission on any cash investments he could put together. However, when Halpern explained the investment plan to their mutual friend, Alfred Savinelli, Savinelli clarified exactly where that funding was coming from. He told Halpern that Picard's cash was flowing in from a New Mexico LSD lab that he had helped Picard set up. Halpern didn't know what to believe. Halpern's fears weren't eased at all when in January of 1998, the stakes escalated higher. Picard gave Halpern a cigar box with $100,000 in cash. It was followed by another containing $199,000. Halpern had to know, where exactly did this money come from? It was around this time that Picard started his work at UCLA with Mark Kleiman. But despite the promotion in researching drug policy, Picard suddenly seemed to lose the drive to actually research. His planning seemed uninspired, lazy even. His colleagues and friends grew worried that Picard was too distracted with something else. They wondered if the reformed chemist was as reformed as he insisted. Those suspicions only grew when it came to financing UCLA's program. The research was self-funded and Picard seemed to have a hard time generating investments. For the first year, at least. But by 1999, funding for Picard's position at UCLA miraculously appeared. According to Mark Kleiman, he received checks totaling $140,000 from some mysterious source. From there, the cash just seemed to flow in. Though it's never been confirmed, it appeared that, like he did with John Halpern, Picard was using UCLA to launder his drug money. And it appeared that business was booming. By the end of the 1990s, Picard was rarely around the office. He produced very few papers. Colleagues noticed his lack of zeal in researching, wondering what else he could possibly be focusing all of his energy on. Mark Kleiman himself said Picard was making me nervous. The writing was on the wall. Picard was cooking again. And this operation was larger and unlike anything that anyone could have ever imagined. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Next week, we'll follow Picard as he establishes the largest LSD lab in the history of psychedelics and eventually falls into the investigation that ushered in his downfall. For more information on William Leonard Picard, amongst the many sources we used, we found the articles The Acid King by Peter Wilkinson and William Picard's Long Strange Trip by Seth Rosenfeld to be incredibly helpful. 
You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Kingpins was written by Malia Graska, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. Remember to join me every Thursday for the all-new series, Haunted Places Ghost Stories. Don't miss the most chilling spirits ever imagined by authors from around the world. Follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.